Camp. This is a four-part series um, that we're kind of working through uh, core disciplines that link to your spiritual health and fitness, uh, core things that help you live as God desires, help us face and answer life's questions from our Savior's perspective. Uh, now, these disciplines or these components are not about appearance. Uh, they're not about attaining the next level in your Christian walk or arriving at some prearranged status or looking good spiritually. It is not a badge that you sew onto your Sunday clothes that proves where you're at. Uh, but instead, these disciplines are what is necessary to truly live the Christian life. So I want to make sure the perspective we take on them is not distant. It's not just a new skill we're going to learn. These are not just things that would be nice to do, uh, but instead we recognize them as things we need to do. I don't want us to relegate them to something we do when it fits our life and schedule, but instead to fit our life and schedule around these things. Uh, let me clarify with an example. Uh, I would love to be a runner, meaning I was a person who loved to run for fun. I, I've always thought, I, I, I look at those people and I think, wow, isn't that great? They can run, they actually enjoy it. Um, but I hate running for the sake of running. I really do. Um, the last time I tried running was with Joe. Uh, we were gonna run in our neighborhood. I made it 100 yards. Um, and that was a stretched 100 yards. It might've been 100 feet. Uh, I blamed it on my knee. Um, I did try it the next day, and Joe pulled up lame, just to show you that neither of us work, uh, can work at running. And I've always hated running. Even when I played soccer, when we would run for practice, I hated it. I, I liked the game. I did not like uh, to run. So I would just say this, running's not for me. It doesn't work for my life and interest. I'll find something else to do for fun and fitness. And, and that works, right? You can go swimming, you can ride a bike, you can hike, you can walk. I wish I did those things, but they're all things you can do if you don't want to run. But if I want to compete in a 5K race or complete a marathon, then I had better be running. Because to do those things, running is not optional. These disciplines, and I want us to see this, are not optional for the growing believer. These are core components of living out a real Christian faith. And so as we look at this idea of a spiritual boot camp, the idea is a focused time where we're going to grab hold of some core disciplines, uh, parts of our walk and our faith that cannot be set aside. This is the necessary training we need to live out and to accomplish what God wants us to do. So I want to encourage us all from wiser to younger, uh, to be open and attentive. I just didn't want to say older when I'm staring out at my dad, you know, I just feel bad saying that. So I just said wiser. I'm trying to keep kissing up. You never stop as a kid, you know, doing that. To be open and attentive to these disciplines and how we can make sure they're a key part of our lives. So these next four weeks, as we work through this, it's going to be about the Bible. It's going to be about prayer. It's going to be about the church. And, and the fellowship, and that's going to be about actually our witness, how we carry God's truth to the world around us, how we actually fulfill our purpose. We're left here to bring him glory. Uh, we've been left here as ambassadors. And so we're going to look at those four components of the faith. Uh, this morning, we kick off with the discipline and exercise of studying the Bible. 
Now, the Bible is the authority for our life. It is the manual, the guidebook. It tells us what God wants. If you got any of the flyers that says, how do you know what God wants? I'm answering that question right now. It's in Scripture. God tells us what he wants in the Bible. And without studying the Bible, Christians will starve and stifle their spiritual growth. They stagnate and forfeit their usefulness, joy, and blessing. The struggle, though, for so many of us is to actually make a practice of consistent Bible study to make it a part of our lives, even after we acknowledge its authority and necessity. So hopefully, by zeroing in on the vital discipline of Bible study this morning, we can begin to overcome those failures and weaknesses. I want to mention them not to berate us, because all of us, I think, have times uh, where we are wrestling with getting up or finding time to read God's Word, to study God's Word. And the goal is to help us understand how critical it is uh, and then to apply that knowledge and make a change in our life where that becomes something that we do. Um, Because we want to overcome the failures and weaknesses as we answer the question of its authority, necessity, and practice. So we'll begin with uh, the question of authority. And rarely do I ever have notes on the board. It was actually Theron's idea, so we we popped them up there. Uh, If you have a spiritual notebook uh, booklet there, you have space to write it down just to help you connect uh, with some of the thoughts that we're going through. The question of authority. Uh, Now, when parents are home, just to kind of illustrate this, kids typically have no doubt about who is in charge, no doubt about who the boss is, or at least in theory, they have no doubt about it. Uh, Children know that one of their parents is the final say on the matter. But when the parents are not home or the kids are given a task to accomplish without the direct supervision of the parents, the battle over who is in charge unfolds immediately. I grew up in a family of six brothers and one sister. And look, my dad was always very clear when we had work in the greenhouse, who was the boss? Because if he's not clear about who is the boss when he's gone, I can guarantee you we're doing no work. We're just battling over who is in charge. And so he made that perfectly clear that the work had to be done and pick the boss. But see, the interesting thing is you remove who the boss is and kids will automatically start looking for someone else to be in charge, or attempt to be in charge themselves. I say that because it seems that too many believers today think the parents are not home and have been wondering about who is in charge and who gives the final answer. Uh, One writer noted this, today we're dealing with the devastating destruction that has accumulated in just a few centuries from viewing the Bible as something less than an errant, authoritative word of God. You see, what's happened as believers, as we have undermined the perfect nature of Scripture, that it is God's Word, that it is our boss, it tells us how to live, we have started searching for someone or something else to be in charge of our life. And so we've looked to culture, we've looked to our career, we've looked to ourselves, we've looked to our family, we've looked to our spouse, we've looked to somebody else to give us the charge or to be our authority. And that comes about because we have missed what Scripture is. We have begun to question Scripture's authority. But it is critical for us to recognize its authority. Why? Uh, Because it is the utterance of God. When Moses addressed Pharaoh in Exodus and demanded the release of Israel, he did so saying, first, 
Thus saith the Lord. On Wednesday nights, we're working through Exodus. We're at this beginning portion. And what is, I think, astounding to all of us as we're going through it is how often Moses will say, thus saith the Lord. Spurgeon writes about that. He says, thus saith the Lord is the only authority in God's church. When the tabernacle was pitched in the wilderness, what was the authority for its length and breadth? Why so many lambs or bullocks to be offered on a certain day? Simply and only because God had shown all those things to Moses in the Holy Mount. What he's saying is because God said so. Why is, are things built the way they're built? Why do things function the way they function? Because that's what God said. It's what God's word says that carries the weight that sets the precedent. Spurgeon noted that even though we read and appreciate the work of great theologians, and he would even be talking about himself, and biblical thinkers, it is only as their teaching aligns with God's word that it bears any significance. So he extolled the virtues of people he liked to read, and so it would be a whole different set of authors than maybe we read today. But he says, the second they veer from Scripture, I scrap anything and everything they say. He just dumps it off. Says, they have no weight except how they align with Scripture. I want you to look at what the Bereans did when hearing Paul preach. And take that in context. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is preaching, and this is what it says about them. They received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Yes, they were more willing listeners than the town before them. They were extolled for that. But the Holy Spirit include in Luke's writing the fact that they searched the Scriptures daily. Why? Because Scripture carried the authority. How do you know when it's true? If it aligns with God's Word. Peter, in speaking of using spiritual gifts, and he kind of summarizes that in service gifts and in speaking gifts. And when he talks about the speaking gifts in 1 Peter 4.11, he tells preachers to speak the oracles of God. Don't give your human opinion, but instead only give what the Word of God says. Why? It's really simple. Because it is the Word of God. And one of the things I'm hoping we're going to pick up on as I repetitively say it, we listen to the Bible because that is God's word. You may ask yourself, I want God to speak to me. He has. It's in his word. It's not a feeling. It's not a movement. It's not an emotion. It's right there in scripture. Paul commanded Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13 to give attendance to reading. He's talking about scripture and he's talking about public reading of scripture. Scripture was to constantly be placed first. It was to have priority. Why? Because the Bible is the utterance of God and it's also the mind of Christ. You look at Paul when he writes in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. He says to them, you have the mind of Christ. He talks about unbelievers not understanding the spirit or the words of the spirit. And he says that they think it's foolishness because they're spiritually discerned. Then he says, but you have the mind of Christ. What is that? Well, it's, it's not some mystical telepathic transmission to us. It's not some feeling we get or an emotional explosion that overtakes us. There's a host of, of faith traditions that have that woven into their fabric. And so someone comes with an utterance. Someone is overtaken they're slayed in the spirit. There's all these things that happen. You go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and people with their traditions locked in and they say, well, I have the mind of Christ because I had this dream, this vision, this idea. And the reality is this, uh, the mind of Christ is pointing to the word of God. It's pointing to scripture. God's word is how we can think like Jesus. 
Actually, God's word is the only way you're going to think like Jesus. It's how we can discern spiritually, which, as I mentioned, the unsaved individual cannot do that because they find the things of the spirit of God to be foolishness. And Paul writes, and that's a couple verses before that, because they're spiritually discerned, because they're discerned by those who know Christ and are applying his word through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Scripture is the utterance of God. It is the mind of Christ. And as such, it is the framework of how we think. It is the basis of our defense. It is the bedrock of our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 states this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In a world filled and controlled by sin, you can know with certainty that we will need to defend the faith, and that defense is grounded and built on Scripture. It is our foundation. Look, the facts that are used and discovered through history and science that validate truth are helpful, they're needful, but our basis of defense, our ultimate foundation has never been the latest discovery, real or supposed. And by the way, um, I love history, science, and archaeology. My undergraduate is in science, uh, so I'm not against all that. I, am, I love the work that's done by some great Christian organizations, Answers in Genesis and things like that, but your foundational bedrock principle is not the latest discovery, real or supposed. It's not the latest perfectly crafted argument that silences the opponent for a moment. That those are helpful and needful, yes, But no, you don't have to stay abreast of the latest quick, witty response to what the world is throwing out there. You need to instead know God's word. Our basis of defense, as Christ makes clear, is the word of God, the self-validating foundation, the final standard of the truth. When we present the gospel, when we share the truth, when we defend the Christian faith, we stand on the truth of God and his word, and that is never called into question for us. I know I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. Um, this is the foundational. It's, it's in, in the discipline of apologetics. If you're defending the faith, there's a whole discipline of study that you can get into. Uh, they would call this a presuppositional fact. So the Bible is the bedrock. We always assume its validity and its truth. It's self-validating. That's what the word means. It is the truth, and so it validates itself. And so I say this about Scripture. If you look outside and you see that the sky is blue, you see that. But the Bible says it's green. If you believe Scripture as you're supposed to, you look at a blue sky and you say, I know it's green. Because the Bible says so. Now, God is never going to write in his word something that's wrong or incorrect. But I use that illustration so you understand that your emotions and your perception are subjected to the truth of Scripture. Jesus stated of himself that he was the way, the truth, and the life. When he taught, it was with self-sufficient authority. Matthew 7, 29 states about him, for he taught them as one having authority 
and not as the scribes. And, and you might say, okay, what does that exactly mean? Well, in their culture, the scribes were the authority, but the scribes always referenced somebody else as the basis for their authority. So when Matthew's writing and says he taught as one who had authority, what he's saying is he taught from his own authority and not like the scribes who worked from someone else's authority. He was his authority. Those who reject his word will stand in judgment under that word. John 12, 48 records Jesus saying this, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. And, and listen to this, The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The emphasis again on Scripture on the word of God. His word carried ultimate authority. When Jesus spoke, it was even as the Father said unto me. It is the direct word of God and no human has the right to question it. Instead, one is blessed if they'll hear God's word and obey it. Luke eleven twenty seven through 28 says this, and it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, blessed is the womb that bare thee. In other words, the woman who gave you birth, that woman is amazing. What is Christ's response to her? He said, yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You want blessing? Listen to God's word. Obey God's word. The weight of scripture is more than any physical sign, wonder, or even scientific fact. I don't know if you remember this story, but in Luke 16, there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it is a parable that goes and it talks about Lazarus who is poor, but ends up near Abraham's bosom, ends up in heaven. And the rich man, not being a believer, ends up in hell. And there's a conversation that goes back. I'm going to dive into this conversation because the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus or somebody back to talk to his brothers so they don't come to this place, right? So Luke 6.31 says this, if they... And this is the response to that request. If they, speaking of the man's brothers, hear not Moses and the prophets. Let me summarize. Old Testament scripture. If they won't listen to the Bible, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And again, Christ is teaching, if you won't listen to scripture, you won't even listen to someone who rises from the grave and talks right to your face. If Lazarus would come back from the dead as the beggar that sat at your door that your brothers would know and stood in front of him and they're like, he died and here he is. If they won't believe the Bible, they will not believe someone who rose from the dead. The Bible is the word of life. And if you reject it, you will reject the truth it proclaims, even if someone rose from the dead to tell you. Nothing, and this is important, nothing is as convincing as the word of God. When we think about the authority of God's word, when you think about the emphasis that's placed on it, recognize that nothing is as convincing as the word of God. Uh, I always hope at City Light, why do we read the scripture reading uh, that we're going to preach on? Why in the world do I read it again? Why do we start the, the service with the psalm? Why are we constantly talking about reading the Bible? Because what is convincing is not how well I may articulate something, but instead how 
clearly the word of God is presented because that is the responsibility. That's what we need to hear. Look, when Jesus was walking with the guys on the road to Emmaus, which happens to be one of my favorite uh, Bible stories, when they were struggling to believe the resurrection, if you remember that story, uh, the resurrection happens and apparently two guys had to take a trip out of town. I don't know how you leave the town when someone's risen from the dead or heard that someone's risen from the dead, but apparently these guys had a meeting and off they went. They're walking along and Jesus joins them. They do not know it's Jesus. So they begin talking to him, which makes sense if you're walking on a dusty road out of Jerusalem, they start talking to him. They talk, he talk, talks about what's taking place. They ask him if he's the only person in the world that doesn't know what's taking place in Jerusalem. But here's what's interesting. They articulate their struggle with believing the resurrection and he rebukes them for it as he's walking, not because they missed the physical evidence, not because they missed the point, not because they've missed what their eyes are telling them, but actually because they missed the evidence from scripture. We're going to pick up the dialogue in Luke 24, 24 through 27. It says here, these are the men and they're explaining the situation to Jesus like he doesn't know what went on because they don't know it's Christ. And they said to him and said, and certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said. In other words, we don't believe the women. We sent some men to see if it was true. And now we believe they said this. And it says, but they saw, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, and I want you to hear the next phrase, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Not fools, you, you, I'm not there. How can you miss this? It's obvious the women were there, the men were there. I'm gone. I told you I'd rise from the grave. What does he tell them? You're slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You should have known about my death and resurrection from the Bible. You should have been convinced from the scripture that you know. And he goes on, ought not Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What did he do while he walked with them? He taught them the Bible. It's Jesus. All he has to do is show his hands. All he has to do is reveal himself to them. But how is he revealing himself to them? Through scripture. I put in my notes what a sermon that must have been. To walk with Jesus and have him explain the Bible to you so that you can see him in scripture. And that should also answer your question. Is Christ in the Old Testament? He permeates it. It's all about him. That's the whole point of scripture from Genesis all the way through. I share all that to solidify in our minds that Scripture is the authority, that it is the bedrock, that it is the foundation, it is the Word of God, and as such, has the say over our lives. I put here, we'll answer for it. What will judge? His Word will judge. Uh, it is the standard, it is the defense, it is the manual of the Christian life. Those things are reality. They're true whether we accept it or not. The authority of Scripture is true to the unsaved person as well as it is to us. It's true whether you want to believe it or not. It is the authority. Psalm 119.89 states this, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Just to make sure you understand how big it is and where it's locked down at. Forever, 
never changing. It is locked down, not just here on earth, but settled in heaven. And no amount of human disbelief will change that. So no amount of of conflict, no amount of spurning, no amount of comedians making jokes about the Bible, no amount of talk show hosts uh, belittling it, no amount of authors writing books that say the Bible isn't true. Nothing will change the reality that it is the authority. God has made sure that is perfectly clear. The question, though, for us, and I put that individually, is that the question for you, does the Bible have its rightful place as the authority over my life. What should you ask? Is the Bible my authority? Is it the authority of your life? Is it the authority of my life? Now, you might say to me, Kenny, I agree with you that the Bible is the authority. And then you question if you really need it on a daily basis. Great. It's my authority. Got you. I'm a Christian. So yes, I believe God's word is important. It is the authority. It sets the standard. But do I really need it all the time? Which brings us now to the question of necessity and carries, carries us to the scripture that, that Theron read. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God just so you know where the source is, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Bible, inspired by God, brings change to every component of life, to summarize that verse. It, it, it corrects you, it instructs you, it is your disciplinarian, it is your teacher, it is your parent, it is, your, it, is every, it dives into every part of your life and brings instruction. It shapes us so that we are complete. That's the word perfect. We are capable and proficient and enables us to meet the demands of righteousness. As MacArthur notes, one's life will affirm the power of the word to lead men to salvation to equip them for righteous living and for faithful service to the Lord. But that's not possible without Scripture. Your life will not point to Christ if Scripture is not a part of your life. It won't work if it's not an integral part of your life. Look, we need His Word for growth. I'm going to go through some verses and probably talk way too fast working through this. So if you miss something, I'll gladly tell you afterwards as well. First Peter 2, 2 says this, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. And the application, it, it can be taken uh, as clear as it said there. You take food away from a baby and the baby's not going to grow. When you have a baby and they're not eating, everyone at the hospital is very concerned about the baby eating. Why? Because if you don't eat, you don't grow. You starve and stifle. You lose usefulness, blessing, and joy. Paul wrote to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And now he's talking about building up. It's growing in spiritual maturity. And that's related to our knowledge of God's word. You cannot grow without knowing his word. Your spiritual life is not advancing at all in any way, shape, or form without his word. 
If you think your spiritual life is advancing and you're not in his word, then you're worshiping something that's not God. You've bought into a world system. I don't know which one, but you bought the wrong thing. It's a fake and it's a fraud because you cannot grow and mature without God's word. Bible study is critical to growth. On top of that, we need his word for victory. The end, of, uh, the end of Ephesians speaks of God's armor and the need to be equipped with it all to confront sin and overcome sin. Ephesians 6.13 says this, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Verse 17 concludes saying this, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, has a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness. It has a host of other things. Here's what's interesting. Every other item listed is defensive or covering. So your feet are shod with the gospel of peace or the, the good news, but everything else is a covering. There's only one offensive weapon in that list, and it's the word of God, which should remind us of its unique role as the basis of our defense of the faith. I had an uncle tell me this one time. He says, if someone's going to get mad at you and attack you and persecute you, let it be for what you say about the Bible. Let it be scripture that they're arguing with. Let it be God, not your own reasoning. And that's the reality. What is our offensive weapon against the attack of this world and the evil and the system? God's word. It's always been God's word. We need his word for victory but it's also the source of blessing. We need his word for blessing. Psalm 1, 1 through 2 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Let me put this in perspective. You're going to be blessed if you don't listen to the world, don't buy into the world's philosophy, don't buy into the world's way, don't buy into the world's priorities, you name it. Don't buy into what the world has to say. That's what it means by not sitting down in this, the counsel of the ungodly. Too often we distance ourselves from those verses and we say, well, I'm not talking to evil people and getting advice. No, but if you're following what the world wants you to do or you, you see yourself following their priorities, that's sitting down in the seat of scornful. What is the blessing that comes with that is, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And that's not speaking of a monk in a monastery praying and doing seances in some tower in the middle of the wilderness. It's talking about a believer who makes God's word what guides his or her life and what forms every decision that they make. That's where blessing comes. Instead of seeking the priorities and the advice of the world, you seek only God's word and its priorities and its advice. Our delight is God's word and we should think about it constantly Doing so brings blessing into our daily lives. It brings healing and encouragement. It cares for our souls. And as we learn its truths, we find that it is the answer to life's many questions and hurdles, which helps us realize we need his word for counseling. And I put this here, it's the medicine needed to care for his church. As a church, and we're going to talk about being the church in week three, but how do we care for each other? How do we, because it's nice to, to pretend like everything will be perfect, but it, it won't be in a world filled with sin and hurt and, and the things that take place. How do we care for each other? Well, we care 
for each other through his word. One writer notes, when people are in trouble, and I change that, when people are hurting, the best way to help them is to show them God's solution to their problems. Then help them apply that solution to their lives. Now, that's a critical part, and we're going to talk about the practice. If you're going to counsel from God's word, you're not just slapping down verses and saying, there you go. You're helping them actually read those verses and actually apply those verses. That requires, though, a thorough knowledge of biblical principles. Psalm 119.24 states this, Thy testimonies also are my delight, which we, we know that, and my counselors. How do I walk through life when I hit a hurdle? And look, getting counsel from God's word, there's no shame in that. We've, we've turned that into something that has a stigma attached to it. There should be congratulations to someone who has enough sense to go seek biblical counseling because the Bible says of itself, I am your counselor. This is how you walk through life. God's word brings insight and direction that is, that is without compare. Psalm 119, 98 through 100 says this, Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. In other words, those, they don't leave. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. And just in case you're wondering, you go into a philosophy class and you're going to get to study all those loony bins that wrote books that people decided to buy and, and to apply in their lives. And, and the fact of the matter is, is Scripture tells you, if you know God's word, that you're going to know more than the ancients, than any old author or, or previous author that everyone thought and has built their philosophies on. You'll know more than your teachers because you're going to be meditating on God's word. And he's trying to show us something, nothing is better than God's word in caring for the souls of his children. His word is the care we need and the exact care or counsel we need to give. We need his word to heal our souls and we need to give his word to help heal the souls of those in church because we need his word, period. And the list I just gave you only begins to show how deeply we need it. You could preach a sermon on Psalm 19, which I've done before. It talks about creation, but it closes with the importance of God's word. Psalm 119, which I've been quoting over and over again, seems to be all about his word. You go through all of scripture and in every area of life, which is what 2 Timothy is telling you, we need his word. But the question that crops up is this, are we willing to acknowledge that and act upon that? Are you willing to acknowledge that we need his word? Because as the old expression goes, that is where the rubber meets the road, which brings us to the question of practice. Look, we all know how to be physically healthy. I don't think anyone's sitting here saying, you know what? I think if I eat a Big Mac every day, I'll be super healthy. If that works, please let me know because I want to get on that diet. I think only my father-in-law would, would think that. He's been working on his health and he, he was telling Heather, he's like, you know, I've cut out fries, so I'm super healthy. But he's still at the burger joint eating the burger. And it's just, 
you know, it's not quite connected all the way, but either way, most of us, right, we know what it takes to be healthy. We're not confused about what we need to eat, and we're not wondering about the benefit of exercise. I joke about exercising, but I have no doubts that I'm supposed to exercise, and I have no doubts that I'm not supposed to eat junk food. I know what I'm supposed to eat to be healthy, and I know what I need to do to be healthy. The main question comes down to application. Are we actually going to do what we know is necessary. You see, agreeing that God's word is the authority, agreeing that God's word is necessary, doesn't bring about a single change in your life. I agree with everyone that I shouldn't eat Big Macs and large fries and drink Coca-Cola. I agree that I should walk every day. Actually, I was told by the doctor to ease my back pain. I should walk twice a day for 20 minutes. Don't ask me how much I've walked in the last month, unless you count from truck to desk, desk to truck, that I'm doing great. But I know it. But for it to have any benefit at all in my life, to change anything at all, I have to actually do it. You can agree that God's word is the authority and you can agree that God's word is necessary, but you have to actually read it, study, study it, listen to it for change to take place. But as we get ready to read, study, and hear, we need to prepare for it. Uh, James 1.21 gives us a caution. It says, Wherefore, lay lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. As we come to the word of God, sin will throw up a barrier. That's That's a fact. And that's what scripture even warns about. It says, you need to address sin. James is compelling us to pray to our Lord and Savior and address those sins. Repent of them, set them out of your heart and mind, and then humbly go to his word, which bears the good news, which shows the way of salvation, which the Holy Spirit uses to convict of sin and accomplish change in our lives. See, scripture itself warns about what is the biggest block to being in his word. And it's our own sin. It's our own selfishness. It's our own schedule. It's our own time. It's our own agenda. All of those things crop up and you have to deal with those. And then when we've dealt with the sin that so easily inhibits us, the sin that seeks to distract us, we need to read and study it. You need to read and study it. You want the benefit of God's word? Then you had better read and study it. You need to get into the habit of reading. How? Well, you need to immerse yourself in it. You need to read it through, not just find a verse or passage for the day. One of the biggest dangers you can have, and and I'm not faulting someone for saying this, I'm not faulting anyone for maybe having this logic, but I hope to maybe just have you think about it. Popping your Bible open randomly, daily, to read something from God's Word and pretending like that's going to have some effect and change in your life, you're fooling yourself. It's not how you know God and know his word. You don't come to his word for the verse of the day to dive in. You don't come to grab a minute here and there. What are some ways you can read God's word? Well, follow one of the yearly plans. We have a city light plan. You can go through God's word. You can read from the Old Testament, the New Testament, a Psalm, a Proverb, and you can make your way through all of scripture in a year. Uh, If that seems Uh, like too much, then then at least at a minimum, read the New Testament through. It's one chapter a day, five days a week. But I underline this. I encourage more than that. Because if you're an adult, you're capable of reading more than that. 
I would say that Scripture warrants more than that. If you're trying to get by with the minimum, then I think you've missed the point about its authority and its necessity, and you might need to go back to James 1.21 and confront a heart that's resistant to God's authority and the necessity of his word. But again, at least get through the New Testament. At least be in a chapter a day working through it. <clears throat> I know some people will say this, and I know for me sometimes when I'm reading in four different places, it's hard to maybe get a grip on what I've read. I can't necessarily remember exactly where I was. Well, you can do a, a different type of reading plan. I would suggest one. It's called a repetitious reading plan. For example, we just went through 1st through 3rd John. So for a, for a month, every day read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It'll take you maybe 10 minutes. And you would read that today and tomorrow and the next day, and you just keep reading it. And at the end of the month, you'll have read those books 30 times. Guess what? You're going to know what 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John says. Here's what's amazing. Uh, you could take that and say, well, Kenny, that's great, but what about the longer books of the Bible? Okay, take the Gospel of John and split it into three parts. Read chapters 1 through 7 for a month, read 8 through 14 for a month, then 15 through 21 for a month. In 90 days, you'll have read the Gospel of John 30 times. And look, there's an advantage to re repetitious reading. When I'm preparing to preach a book of the Bible, my goal is 50 times to that book of the Bible. If you read it 30 times in a month, you're, you're going to be able to preach. I can sit down and listen to you, right? It work out just perfectly. Um, but here's what's interesting. Take that principle, seven chapters every day, and just repeat that kind of idea. And in two and a half years, you'll have read the New Testament 30 times. Two and a half years, seven chapters a day in the New Testament, and you do that repetitious reading, and you'll have read the New Testament 30 times. And I want you to just pause for a second and imagine how well you would know it. How well would you know the New Testament? Look, after a while, you're going to be able to, to close your eyes and remember what the page looks like that it's on. Even if you have a horrible memory, you'll remember details like that. What I'm hoping to show you is you actually have to dive into a, a process, and we're not talking about hours a day. Seven chapters will take you about 10 minutes to read. Beyond that, I'm going to push a little bit, invest some of your money and resources and tools of understanding. Buy some books that will enhance your understanding of Scripture. Now, we need to always remember that the first and main tool to understand Scripture is Scripture itself, because Scripture always is the best interpreter of Scripture. You want to know what a verse means? Find another verse that talks like that, about that same topic, and that's how you understand what the verse means. But there are great helps from godly people that can aid your understanding of what you're reading. For instance, commentaries, like the one-volume Wycliffe commentary. And I keep pointing because on the back table in the lobby, I've set out some examples. <coughs> Excuse me. Those examples are for you to look at, don't take, they're to look at, and I hope that you can maybe analyze, because my push for you is to, if you don't have a, a good commentary, that you buy one. And the best way is to take a little picture of it and then go to Amazon and order it. Uh, Wycliffe commentary is a one-volume commentary. I have a, a Bible knowledge commentary. It's a two-volume commentary. You want more than that, you can get an expanded MacArthur's New Testament commentaries. They're going to be phenomenal. Um, those on the back table, take a look at them. 
But I'm going to say this. You should own a good commentary. So pick one and buy it. And then here's a real big thing. Actually use it while you're reading. That's my big thing. I own a lot of commentaries that I've not read. So it does me absolutely no good. The fact is what you're going to read is going to be helpful. And so add that into your study. Why? Because as you read God's word, you're going to observe and understand what it says. And then you can use these helps to get to the meaning of those words. You're going to dig deeper and deeper because God's word is living. You might say, Kenny, I've read the gospel of John now 30 times. Should I ever read John again? Yeah, keep reading John. You'll never plumb the depths of what it has for you. You'll always have more. There's also reference works. I have an atlas back there. Well, what does that help you with? Well, it tells you where everything's happening, where it takes place. Uh, I'm not a map person. Some people are, but I go to them so I can understand when the Bible's talking about up, down, sideways, whatever, what river they're crossing. I know what's going on. Some of you need to know exactly where it is. Well, an atlas will help you. Get a dictionary. That'll tell you what they're saying. Get a concordance. Strong's Concordance, I have one there. It's called this Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And any, any verse in the Bible that connects to the verse you're reading, it'll tell you where it's talking about that. It's really thick and it's really small print. So it's not something you're going to read through in a night, but it's something you reference. You, you open it up to look at it. What does that help you with? It tells you where other parts of Scripture talk about that. Get a topical index. You want to research about faith or love or, or whatever it is, that'll help you walk through scripture and know it. All these do one thing. They help you understand scripture so that you can dig deeper. I say all that just as, as a practical step for you to look at, but you have to ask yourself this. Are we willing to commit time and energy to actually read and study God's word? And I guess that's my biggest hurdle with accepting the statement of, hey, grab three minutes a day and read the Bible. Because what you're saying is spend no time or energy and it'll bring all the benefit in the world. And I will say this right now, it will not. Not when scripture says meditated on it day and night, then I cannot stand behind a three minutes a day to keep the devil away mentality. I can only stand behind saying, put some time and energy into what you are going to say is the authority, God's word, and what you know is necessary in your life, then invest some time and energy into it. Maybe you're a kid sitting here and you think, oh, Kenny's just talking to the adults. I'm not. I want you to be reading your Bible. I think if you're in fourth grade, you can read through the New Testament a year. There's no reason you can't. One chapter a day, five days a week, read the New Testament, and you'll be way further than all of us by the time you become an adult because you're going to know God's word. I want to encourage you to dive in. And if you're a kid and you can't figure out how to do this, I want you to come talk to me because I will help you get on a plan to walk through scripture. I'll help the adults too, but I kind of think you should be able to help yourself. But either way, the kids, I'm definitely motivated to help because you can read through the Bible and you should. You don't just want to hear me talk about it or your Sunday school teacher. You want to read it for yourself. You want to know it for yourself. But here's the big question. Are we willing to commit time and energy to actually read and study God's word? Are we going to actually apply what we know? The Bible is our authority. It has a say over our lives. It has that right. We live in a world that's constantly talking about my rights, my rights, my rights. I have this right. They have this right. I should have more rights. I have more voting points. It's, it's never ending. 
There's one thing that has the right, scripture has the right to tell you what your life should be and how it should be lived. The Bible is clearly necessary. We need it to grow spiritually, to have victory over sin, to care for each other. And on top of all that, it brings a clear blessing. But all that truth needs to be applied. It needs to be practiced. To say you believe the Bible is the authority, that you know it is needed, and then to not read it means you don't really believe it is the authority and that you need it. Because what you do with God's word tells you what you really think and believe about it. And that's not for me to analyze in your life. That's for you to analyze in your own life. If you really believe it is the authority and you really believe it is necessary, you will read it. Now, I understand in, in the way life works, uh, that, that sometimes that desire may wane in us. Sometimes we will struggle. And I, I always say this, don't look at the struggle and then give up. Look at the struggle as a hurdle to overcome. I always say, you want to get into the habit of reading the Bible? Read the Bible. You'll make a habit. When you don't feel like reading the Bible, read the Bible. That's the only way to get over it. And I, I recognize that there's times of struggle and there's times of wrestling and that's what you have a church to help come alongside you. But I hope to emphasize this. If you don't read it, then you really don't believe it's this authority and you really don't believe it's necessary. Now, before I close in prayer, I wanted to mention a book. Uh, there's a stack of them on the back table. It's a book that will build your skills. So this is not so much a reference book as it's, a, it's like a manual on, on how to actually get better at studying the Bible. It's, it's written by Howard Hendricks, one of my favorite authors. Um, and I've never heard him teach live, but I've had the benefit of reading and seeing video lectures. Um, it's titled Living by the Book. This is uh, the textbook I use when I teach institute and college classes on biblical interpretation and getting to fancy words, biblical hermeneutics. This is my textbook. This is the, the, what I grab to use for that, uh, both here and in Spanish-speaking countries. Well, I have copies in the back that are free uh, that you can take. But I want you, if you take one, to sign your name down. Like I took a book, and then I want you to sign up um, for when you think you might finish that book. So in other words, it's a free book if you're going to read it. So put your name down, and then I'm hoping you'll put a date next to it. Not a specific date, but April, May, December. I don't care how long it takes you to read it. I want you to sketch your name and then put a date next to it. And, and here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to reach out to you in that month and set up a time to grab a coffee, uh, grab lunch, and then chat with you about the book. Uh, it's not going to be a quiz or a test. I'm not going to, you're like, oh, you fail. Pay me for the book. It's, it's not that. Uh, it's just a conversation. And so I want to mention this. There's a free book that comes with a free coffee or lunch. And if you're going to get a free, you might as well get a lunch out of it. Because you can always order coffee at lunch. So you get both. Um, and a conversation. And so whether we get together as a group on a certain month or individually, whatever it may be, I just hope that if you'll grab the book, uh, and it is a skill-building book, and so it'll want to walk you through um, methods and, and, again, getting more skillful in how to read God's Word and observe it, how to interpret it, and how to apply it. Uh, I mentioned this, if by chance all the books are taken, sign up and note that you don't have a book and we will order a copy for you that'll be here within two weeks. 
But if you're looking to grow your skill in understanding Scripture and how to study and actually how to teach Scripture, it's a book that will help you grow that skill. Let's pray together. If I thank for the opportunity we have to study your word and to study about your word. I hope that in all the conversation, all the words and all the verses read that what will hit home in our, in our hearts and minds is that your word is our authority, that the Bible has the right to tell us what to do with our life, that it directs our life. And so when anything else comes in conflict with that, that something else bends, that we don't bend your word to fit our life. We don't bend your word to fit uh, the world's priorities. We instead uh, bend everything else to the will of your word. And I hope that as uh, we finish um, the study on the Bible, as we move on, but that we can be uh, locked in our hearts and mind that your word is our authority, that we need it, and that we should be reading it and studying it. Give us the determination uh, to do that. Help us to set a habit of reading and study. In your precious and holy name, amen. <laughs> <laughs>